Hello everyone and thank you for the download. It's Friday, April 19th, and this is episode 8 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassy, and today I'm joined by my co-host Skipper Ben. What's going on, Ben? Skipper Ben's not here, but Satan's back for his second episode. <laughs> I got a five-star review on iTunes, and I'm back, baby. That's a pretty good get, Mephistopheles. I'm glad you can join us. Uh, also joining us is the Sultan of Saki. What's up, Josh? When did Ben get second billing? I know. Billing. I, you got I, demoted. This is a second episode like that. I'm moving this on is, up, baby. This is what killed Van Halen, so you better watch yourselves. <laughs> I was just anticipating you to sneeze during Ben's intro, so I figured you'd get your, your uh, plug in there anyway. I'm mainlining Allegra over here trying to not have my allergies explode into the episode. Uh, we may put a, put a Josh sneeze at the end of the show just for kicks. <laughs> it's my birth control sneeze. Yes, yes. So uh, we are back a good month, month and a half later uh, from our last show. Uh, we've been promising something uh, since episode five, and that was a breakdown of Josh's Wreck-It Ralph idea. So we will get to that. But we wanted to talk Epcot because we haven't done that in at least uh, one episode. Um, since we last spoke, uh, more information on the future of Future World has come out, courtesy of our beloved Tom Corliss. Uh, he put a, a new layout out there of how Future World will look. So we're going to talk about that. But I think first, we're going to kick off with uh, Skipper Ben, who is heading to Disneyland for the first time in five years, Ben? It's been about five years. Yeah, I'm going to Disneyland. I'm uh, the Super Bowl? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, part of the uh, New England Patriots. Oh, so uh, you're a winner, and that's why you get to go before Josh. Got it. Hey, <clears throat> I'm not a part of the Red Sox, who obviously none of them are going to the Disneyland this year. I posted my working theory on that on Twitter. Shots fired, baby. <laughs> so what's, uh, yeah. uh, what's in store for you in Disneyland? Uh, don't know. That it's uh, It's been so long since we've been out there that, uh, you know, really excited to get out and check out, obviously, some of the new attractions I haven't seen before, and namely uh, Mission Breakout. Uh, the, I, I, my whole trip probably is revolving around getting out there to see that and, uh, experience that for the first time. I, I have you done mission bracket breakout Tim? You have, haven't you? Yes, I have as well okay. as mission bracket, which is a much less popular attraction, but <laughs> it's kind of bizarre to just see the Marvel characters in a Disney park. But I mean, you love these movies. I love these movies. Um, Marie wouldn't spend all day getting pictures taken with Black Widow for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but uh, the ride is fun and I don't want to see it replace the Florida version, but I think it is a better ride than what was there previously for California Adventure. Uh, Yes, it's an eyesore that can be seen elsewhere in the park, but so too was Tower of Terror. It didn't really fit in with the backdrop of Cars Land either. So um, it's a fun ride. Uh, Yeah. No, you know, doing that, and I can't, I can't really, uh, you know, the Incredicoaster is not high up on the list, but I definitely want to check out the uh, changes they've done there because I loved California Screaming uh, as it was. So, uh, you know, it, it, they didn't change it enough to really uh, take away the, I don't know, the, the feel of the original attractions, but uh, getting to see how those characters are incorporated in the Scream tunnels and stuff like that will totally. be uh, fun to check out. Uh, I don't, I, we're gonna. We have definitely said we're gonna do that at night because, yeah. based on the videos we've seen online, it does seem to, that the effects are much better in the dark. So uh, we're gonna give it a shot that way. Uh, but this is an interesting trip. to see uh, just the husband and wife going out there. The kids are staying at home with the grandparents. So uh, it's our first adults-only trip to a Disney theme park since uh, at least 2006. Wow. So we're uh, really looking forward to that. We'll be out there for uh, Saturday and Sunday. We've got two full days in the park. We'll actually get there 
the Friday before. So we're going to go down to downtown Disney, have dinner. Uh, we like to go down to Tortilla Joe's and eat outside where and, and catch the fireworks or whatever nighttime festivities like from the patio. So uh, it kind of gets us in the mood for what we're going to have the next couple days to look forward to. Lisa's a diehard fan of Indiana Jones. So I guarantee we'll be riding that at least a half dozen times. And uh, outside of that and, and Mission Breakout, uh, you know, we'll just see what else we can get incorporated in the uh, time period we have there. Uh, I think we are definitely doing the max pass though, based on, you know, everything you've ever said about it. Yeah. We're going to uh, add that to our uh, list and just see how it works. You know, we're last time I was there, it was one of those instances of being there for rope drop and getting over to get your cars land uh, fast pass as soon as possible. Your radiator Springs uh, I'm assuming again, have not done max pass, but I'm guessing, you know, hopefully once we get right through the gate early in the day, we can call up the app and get our hands on one of those quickly and uh, you know, just see how it works. Yeah. It's a, it, it was what I wanted FastPass Plus to be. And when we used it, it's convenient. I will say my biggest beef over there, though, is that their uh, cellular service and Wi-Fi signals aren't great. So be prepared to be frustrated about that. But it still beats if you're if you want to get a FastPass for Splash Mountain and you're in California Adventure, you can do it and not walk 20 minutes to get it. So that in itself is a big advantage. And I believe it's, what, $15 a day? I haven't checked it recently. Yeah, $15 a day add-on. And that's what I really like about it, actually, because whenever we've gone out to Disneyland, we've always treated both parks as just one giant park. And being able to book a Fast Pass when you're in one park for the other one, uh, that's a convenience that oh, uh, uh, you can't beat. And that's that's worth it alone there, especially uh, – the distance that you can walk from some of your favorite attractions to and from to get those old paper fast passes, to be able to just pull out your phone and do it. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to pay that extra charge to, to have that benefit. Back in the day when it was just paper over there, um, the two parks were disconnected. They are now connected. Uh, and within each park, there were, uh, there are attractions that were also further disconnected, if that makes sense, where like tower of terror was on one grouping and California scream was on another. So in theory, you could go grab a Tower of Terror Fast Pass and then go over to California Screaming, grab one of those, then go across the way, get a Space Mountain one, and then get a Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin one. Technically, you could get all four of them, uh, and you're just spending the entire day collecting Fast Passes, which if uh, you're like me and you don't actually go on any rides, then that, that works out. But um, with with Max Pass, the other advantage of it is on attractions like Radiator Springs Racers, where the return time is pushed out more than two hours, I believe they allow you to get a, another fast pass after an hour and a half as opposed to two hours, which are the paper rules. So something else to just keep an eye on what they allow you to uh, to get a new fast pass for. Uh, yeah, the, the other thing I've had to get used to uh, with, with going back to the old system is the idea that not every attraction has a fast pass uh, as we've been yeah. sitting around kind of mapping out our day. You know, it's real easy to think of in Florida to get my fast pass for Peter Pan and be sure to get our fast pass for Haunted Mansion and get our fast pass for Pirates. And uh, it's taken a little reeducating my brain that a, a large number of the attractions we really like to go on do, does not have fast pass. So we have to get back in the mindset of waiting, you know, 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour for some of our favorite rides. So uh, I don't Did know. It's almost... Any- Go ahead. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's kind of a, you know, uh, traveling back in time a little bit uh, when, when we head out there compared to all these, you know, recent years we've gone to Florida since since our last Disneyland visit. I know you're a fan of the Fantasyland attractions over there. Um, if you have a uh, early admission day, and I don't know if you will on your ticket, but if you can get there and 
say it's a nine o'clock opening, but an hour early admission and you get there right at eight, you can probably hit all the fantasy land attractions, um, at least the, uh, the dark rides and do that in the first hour and then start picking up fast passes for some of the marquee rides, but you can get on Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland and the ones that build up a long wage pretty quickly. So as long, as long as I get my uh, multiple rides on the storybook, storybook land canal boats, I'll be happy. <laughs> and I'm not joking about that. I absolutely love that attraction. Do you wish that they would do a jungle cruise type spiel on it or? Uh, no, no. I, it, okay. my favorite, one of our favorite things to do is, uh, at night, you know, it is the fairy tale telling the story of the, uh, of the areas as you pass by, but doing it at night in the dark, uh, the, the models just look much more realistic and much more impressive. And, uh, the, the, you know, the parts that they do spiel going along with it, uh, just puts you in a good mood. It's, it's just such a nice, calming, relaxing, short 10 minute boat journey. I love it. So one of my, uh, we got to bring this all back to Imagineering. One of my uh, fans. Uh, but it, 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 uh, is everybody here still? Because it seems like it's just the two of us. I just want to make sure I haven't heard I'm sneeze. Here. Okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> He's been sneezing, <laughs> but I'm mute. Sometimes the smartest guy in the room was the one who's not running his mouth constantly. <laughs> that, like this that doesn't case. apply here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so uh, on the storybook canal boats, um, they have, for people that aren't familiar with it, they have miniaturized versions of uh, scenes in various Disney movies. And something that I always look at on that is the uh, the backdrop, the mountain range backdrop of the Frozen sequence that they have. Yes. Uh, I think that since I have already uh, said on this show that I want to move It's a Small World to, uh, to Epcot, that continuing the Beauty and the Beast mountain range into that Frozen mountain range would be a pretty easy transition to do. So just... Uh, Keep an eye out for that. See if you share that opinion when you go on the ride. Yeah, no, I, I agree there. That's uh, it's one of those attractions that I love it at Disneyland, but it'd be awesome to have something like that out in Florida as well. It's just a, such an easy, simple concept. Yeah. Uh, granted, it's a pretty, pretty big chunk of land, uh, but there's really nothing cutting edge about it whatsoever. It's just old school Disney done in a, in a great way. So uh, love that ride. And I like your idea as well of incorporating that mountain range. But I mean, again, if it pulls, you know, a thousand people away from something else, then it's certainly good. And those are one of the reasons why, despite the additions of New Fantasyland, so many people enjoy Fantasyland and Disneyland more so yep. than uh, the one in Florida. But uh, beyond uh, Ben's upcoming trip to Disneyland, uh, Josh, you recently went to Dollywood, which uh, I think by a lot of people's standards are pleasantly surprised by how well done that park is. I've never been. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it, it, it's a very interesting experience to go there for me because I hadn't been since I was a little kid. So it had been many years, and I really don't have any recollection of my my first visits there. Uh, but for those that don't know, it's in uh, the Pigeon Forge area of Tennessee, which is mountainous. I mean, it's uh, Smoky Mountains, not Rocky Mountains, but nonetheless, there's terrain there that is not Florida swamp flat. Um, and that was the first impression that the park made on me is that the, just the landscape there is absolutely gorgeous. And the way that they integrated the park into it was very respectful of that. They didn't, uh, they worked with the, you know, environment that they had. Um, and it, it's a very visually impressive park. Um, the, the reason I wanted to mention it on the show was because, as I mentioned, I think on a previous episode, it's easy for us sometimes to get negative about things that Disney does because we, you know, we're, we're perfectionists and we love these things and anything that they do that we don't like, we, that's the stuff we tend to talk about. So familiarity um, breeds contempt. Exactly. I mean, there's actually a, a girl down at FAU did her doctorate at Florida Atlantic university in Florida. Uh, she was 
I don't know exactly what her major was, but she actually did it on an episode of the Kingdom Cast, uh, <laughs> a, a scholarly paper, and it was the, the 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 thrust of it was basically: Are we actually fans of these parks or not? Because so much of what we say is negative, and I I don't really remember what her conclusion was, but the point is, uh, as you said, those of us who love it tend to be complainers. Um, All I know is that I got more mentions than that than you did. <laughs> I'm glad that your ego isn't at all involved to this. I forgot I, I, that you're a part of that. I always wonder if those e-ticket guys are fans of the parks every time I listen to an episode of that show. Can't speak for the other two. <laughs> um, but the the reason I well, – the point of all that buildup is to say that despite how beautiful and gorgeous that park was and the fact that I would consider it to be generally well run um, – there are just some operational things that we encountered. It was uh, Will and Mac uh, of Kingdom Cast fame and I and a friend of ours. Um, in terms of just basic operational things, you have to go to a regional park, I think, t- to really appreciate how good Disney does things. Um, just in terms of loading and unloading rides, um, taking care of small spills and keeping the operation going without a lot of hiccups. Um, I don't want to delve into details, but this was a park that you could tell it wasn't Six Flags where people were just indifferent and didn't care. It was just a lack of competence operationally compared to Disney. And it, I, I'm not saying that to to rag on Dollywood. I'm saying that uh, as a compliment to Disney because it's almost like the you sometimes hear people joke about the TSA problem that you never know about the you know the terrorist act that they didn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Disney operations are that way to some degree. Is it? when they work properly, which is a lot of the time, uh, you don't even notice it. And so just a little shout out to all the people that are keeping the, you know, keeping the gears turning there at Walt Disney world. I, I, you're doing a pretty good job. You know, your, your point is spot on. I drive, uh, past, uh, six flags over Texas to and from work every single day. And I love the park. We have uh, season ticket holders there. We have been for years. I've been going since I was a little kid, but Spending ten minutes in there just makes me appreciate Disney World all all that much more, and it makes me it makes it real easy for me to fanboy out on anything Disney. But that's also because of the, you know what I have close and local to me that I have access to just makes me appreciate what they do all that much more. You know, yep. anybody anybody wants to complain about a broken AA at Disney World, you ought to come ride Yosemite Sam at Gold River Adventure and see the the Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck AAs that we have here. Uh, you will never complain about another malfunctioning Disney audio animatronic after seeing what you, you know, what we have here. And it's probably the same way at your local parks. Well, you know, the other thing too, I mean, that's, that's a really good point is that if you distinguish between ops and management, that distinction gets even bigger between, you know, other, because if you look at something like the Yeti, that's not an operational problem at this point. There, there came a point at which management decided as as a strategic matter that they were not going to fix that thing. So you can no longer look at ops and say, Oh, they haven't fixed it in this long. That is just not on their agenda at this point. That's a decision that was made. Um, Whereas the problems we were seeing at Dollywood were literally just people not knowing how to execute you know, the basics of their job, uh, in an efficient way. Um, and it it also made me think of, you know, all the times that we on the show and and Tim on e-ticket and and other places, we talk about what ride capacities are. Um, you know, we talk about these complex machines and what their capacity is. And I think too often, uh, we skip over the human component of that because Mm -hmm. I can tell you, um, you know, Bollinger and Mabillard, who are, you know, the designers of, you know, a roller coaster are going to publish some numbers. Did you as just to sneeze what it, again? No, <laughs> those are the real <laughs> words, I swear. <laughs> They're European, Tim. <laughs> Don't be such a xenophobe. You know it. Anyway. English, please. 
<laughs> Damn it. <laughs> See what you did to me. Um, you know, the, the capacity that they were running these rides at was probably in some cases, I would guess 35 to 50% of what they were actually capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when we talk about the attractions that are going into galaxy's edge, the one component that's that we almost take for granted is that the cast members that are handling loading, unloading are going to be doing it in accordance to how the ride was designed to be operated, which was not the case there. So just shout out to Disney. Keep doing that. Well, you know, we'll keep yelling at you for all the changes you make that we hate, but, but that seems to be one level of service that they're, they're still doing a good job at. To your point on, our presumption that Disney cast members are going to be trained correctly and they are going to be trained to optimize efficiency on a particular attraction. Uh, I think our large, largely our biggest accusations there are that it's, it's guest fueled that uh, yeah. any, any disruptions to an hourly capacity number in Disney are, is guest fueled. Yep. Whereas I'm guessing what you were seeing is probably not far off from what we saw at, um, various local parks that we went to uh, uh, last year when I went with Mac and, and Will, um, where you see no groupers in an attraction, a roller coaster where you've got guests loading themselves. So they're often loaded at anywhere between 50 and 70% capacity. They're not running um, enough trains when they can you know, load and unload more efficiently. And those yep. are things that just generate long lines and that in itself is frustrating. But yeah, I mean, your point's exactly right. It, it's almost like at Disney when you're standing in line, you you empath- or sympathize with the cast member because the guests can't figure out how to do things. And right. as the three of us were standing there waiting to get on this ride, it was, we almost felt like let us do it, yeah, you know. Exactly. And, and and it wasn't just us that are you know nerds on the theme park podcast, um, you know, just ostensibly lay people who don't obsess about theme parks. We're like, oh my gosh, why aren't they doing it in this much more obvious way? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty funny. So, yeah. Anyway. I think we could probably uh, bitch about local theme parks for a while and their operations, but uh, I want to get over to Epcot because there is some interesting things here and we have to talk Epcot every show. Apparently Tom Corliss over at WDWNT uh, posted a layout of the new, I guess, aesthetics for lack of a better word of future world and the center of future world and what the changes are going to be. Um, the, the most notable things are the demolition of Innoventions West and the Fountain of Nations. Uh, there is going to be a beer garden, uh, a new Starbucks, a water maze uh, that will connect the center of that uh, uh, future world over to um, the Nemo Pavilion, and a handful of other things like a festival pavilion, um, which I believe was what we had dubbed the mystery tan building in the concept art that Disney had put out there. Uh, I know you guys have taken a look at this. Do you have any thoughts one way or another on uh, what this means for Epcot's future? I think you dubbed that festival building a Starbucks, which did, your star- yeah. the Starbucks here is much smaller than the one that you were hoping for. I would <laughs> imagine that the Starbucks is probably bigger than what is a uh, very uh, uh, crude drawing. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, I think the the larger building that was in the Disney release concept art is probably that festival center building. Um, if not a multi-use building, it could be partially a Starbucks as well. I'm just glad we're getting a second beer garden in this park. Hopefully we can get a third and a fourth and a fifth one somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know if there's enough places to find booze in Epcot, so it's good <laughs> that they're doing that. <laughs> so I'll say that the, I'm using art finger quotes around the word artwork, but the, the diagram that Corliss posted makes it somewhat hard for me to visualize what the finished product would actually look like, but it gives some idea, at least from a top down what the layout is. Yeah. 
So, so I'll comment on it from that perspective. And I think to, to really make the point I want to make, you have to kind of think back to what Epcot was supposed to be in the very beginning. And that was sort of a model of a planned community. And mm-hmm. the idea that's embodied in that is that you can do a better job of laying something out if you put a lot of intentionality into it and consider what it's going to expand into into the future um, so that it's not like cities in the past where, you know, they started near a river or something and they just sort of sprawled out haphazardly. The idea here is that we consider future expansion from the beginning so that it, it remains sort of structured and, and functional as time goes on. And I think it's very hard to argue the fact that we've lost that, particularly in this area of Epcot. Um, if you just Google, you know, opening day Epcot or even in the late 80s, early 90s, what that area of Epcot used to look like. It was very uncluttered. Um, There's a lot of symmetry there. And, you know, there's just a lot of green space and open pathways. And that's really just sort of gotten messed up. So what, what I can say about this plan is it seems to me to be big enough in scale to where it has a chance of making a huge improvement. Because it's not just tweaking, you know, repurposing a, sh- a building that's there for something else. It's getting the bulldozer in there getting back to fresh, clean earth and yeah. starting over with a with a plan that might make some sense holistically. So from that perspective alone, I have hope just in that they're giving enough attention uh, and making a big enough scale project to where we might end up with a an area that has more of a clean, minimalist aesthetic uh, like we used to. So that, that gives me hope. Josh, you kind of answered my question before I asked it, but I'll ask it to Ben. Uh, do you guys like the current aesthetic of the center spine of Future World? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, that's where I think we're coming down here that like, all right, perhaps the coolest component of this is the fountain that's going away. But in in general, this isn't a particularly great area uh, of the park. It's just it's it's how you crisscross future world is what it is. And there's not a whole lot uh, of substance there. The only thing that worries me here is just, you know, just looking at this picture, there's what six buildings that profit margins are going to be a driving factor in how they function. There's a lot of merch. There's a lot of sales opportunities in here that there's a, not a lot of imagination. Uh, well, two of those, the two biggest ones, though, already exist as merch and food and beverage. Yep. So, And the I, truth is that there was never a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, attraction or anything in this area. This is, this was sort of the the center of town. It was an area for transit. So, and if you just think about what makes a good entrance area, I mean, we can, we don't have to be architects to, to really speak to that. I don't think. And if, for example, the awnings that are in front of earth station do nothing to provide any meaningful shade, no. but they clutter up the skyline. They block the views outward. And that's in my mind, sort of the exact opposite thing that you would want. Um, you have this sort of cinematic view obstruction and reveal when you walk around Spaceship Earth. And to me, what you would want there is a clear sight line out into, uh, you know, the lagoon and across the way. But instead, you've got these, you know, this cluttered skyline of these tri- triangular shaped awnings that are up there. Um, you've got all these weird buildings. It's very asymmetrical. Um, you know, Communicore used to look like two kidneys, like two kidney mm-hmm. beans. They were perfectly symmetrical. The, the layout was very, very clear. Um, and they just sort of have these tumors sort of arbitrarily growing off all sides of them now to where it's just an absolute mess. So I think getting sometimes, you know, the way to make something better is to take something away. And anyone who's ever collected things, I think has probably experienced this. When you get your first two of something, you want more, right? Because that's how you build a collection. That's how you establish it as being significant. But once you have 
you know, think of Disney pins, for example. Once you got 500 of them, it, it just, the signal to noise ratio is so low or so, yeah, so low that um, the beautiful things that you have get obscured by all the junk. And that's the state of Epcot in general, but it's definitely the state of this area. So if they can eliminate some of the junk and, you know, let the, let the impressive architecture that's already there be revealed, I think that will have a striking impact on people and they don't have to build anything new or expensive, really. They just have to, you know, scrape away the craft and let, let the treasures that they've already got trickle up to the surface. What, what's being predicted to going in here though? Is there, what, what are your feelings compared to the initial artwork that we saw of this area that what they were going to change it into and all the, <laughs> all the imagination, I guess, maybe that was behind that, that we built up in our own minds. Now that we yeah. know what is possibly going in these spots, how do you feel after that? Well, so I think you, that, go sorry, go, I was going to say that uh, to me, the D23 artwork was basically a Rorschach test. Um, it was so low resolution and small um, that it didn't really provide any detail at all. I mean, the one thing you could say about it is that it had a lot of green space, um, which I think is good, but, you know, and ostensibly we're not getting that now, but it, none of the buildings that are currently there are actually represented in that. Right. In that model. So they have to demolish all of Camino Core. And I just think that whoever drew that wasn't really expecting that to be built. There were a handful of different ideas for Future World. And I think we saw one of them at D23 Expo in uh, 2017. And it's possible that when they put that out there, that was just the best piece of concept art that they had. And it yep. was probably not the leader in the clubhouse for what the what plan they were going to move forward with. Uh, within the last couple of days, Martin Smith uh, had suggested that one of the ideas was replacing both Communicore buildings in some way, shape, or form with hotels. And that they were going to line that up with um, uh, larger hotels, which might have solved the uh, sightline problems for Guardians of the Galaxy, but <laughs> wouldn't have necessarily uh, been the, the best choice either. He said it was going to be glass-heavy, very clean, modern, uh, and probably looked out of place, especially with all the greenery around it. But um, So that, that would be the first U.S. hotel actually inside the gates of a theme park, right? Uh, Grand Californian is kind of uh, similar okay. out in California Adventure, but it would have been more substantial. It would have been more like Miracosta out in Tokyo. Yeah, as you say, Grand California is still more perimeter of that yeah, park yeah. as opposed to being inside the park. Like you can see it definitively from the park. You can look out the windows and watch people uh, like walk along the pathways, but it's um, Miracosta is legit in the park. Uh, and that's what I think they would have been going for here. But um, something from that original concept art that I think at least survived in some way, shape or form. If you've seen that concept art and uh, I'd sent you guys the, uh, the article, there are circular things towards where we would expect the fountain of nations to be on this recreation. And I believe those are where it looks like a cat paw. If you actually look at the drawing, Um, (laughs) I I, I think those are, uh, Areas where they would have jumping water, kind of like the uh, exterior of show of imagination. Yeah, so that's what I think the uh, the water feature that they're talking about that's going to extend over to the seas will probably be. And you know what? As a kid, I loved that area, and watching my nephews play in that area, doing the exact same stupid human tricks that I did when they're getting <laughs> soaked in the middle of Epcot. You know what? That's great, and I love that something like that is going to be adding kinetic energy to the land. And all right, you're replacing one water feature with another one. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this and there's not a lot about Epcot's future that I'm really looking forward to. So I think yeah. this is, 
I'm looking forward to the uh, food and beverage building that's going to be able to fit four spaceship Earths inside of it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's safe to say that Tom's drawing is not to scale. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. If you but thought the it's... Guardians bu- building was big, wait till you see the new counter service restaurant. We're going to stack 40 food and wine booths on top of each other <laughs> yeah. fit them into a 130-foot tall building. That's how, you, that's how you block out the Guardians building. You should just make a larger building in front of it. Exactly. That was our suggestion. Uh, yep, that's great. You know, so, with with regard to the Fountain of Nations, I, I think this is one of those things that the, the passage of time hasn't been kind to. Yeah. Um, whoever was, uh, you know, responsible for that had to be pretty upset when the Bellagio, you know, installed their okay. their show. It's, it's just one of those things that I don't think that it's going to impress a lot of people now. And no. it's actually, it's very big and it's right in the middle of a pathway, you know. So yeah. I think if you could do something that's, that's new and... Um, you know, that's something that while I appreciate it and I, it's, it's kind of cool and I've taken slow motion video of it and all the other dumb tour stuff, but um, I think it's, that's one of those things that I don't think is anybody's, unless somebody proposed to their significant other in front of it or something, which I'm sure happened. I'm sure I'm someone's sure mourning it its departure. Uh, but for me anyway, it's not something I have a really strong nostalgic connection to. I, I just want to know where I'm going to get my effing free Cokes at from now on. <laughs> Yeah, you got to pay for it. You have the, I think, a similar selection over at the Coke Place at Disney Springs. But where's my club, club cool? Where's my Beverly? I need my melon frosty. But uh, <laughs> um, it's, yes, it's purely anecdotal. But on, on our last trip, my nine-year-old nephew deliberately uh, or uh, specifically wanted his picture in front of the Fountain of Nations without any hmm. provocation, which was a little weird. But he's a weird kid, so I guess it checks out. But. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're all weird on this bus. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I expect this to be a D23 announcement. Um, I'm sure that they're holding back things like this just to have something in the event that whatever big announcements they may have fall through. Uh, like, say, if they're planning a Brazil announcement or something like that. Um, they want to at least have something to show on Epcot because they teased the the future of it last, uh, last D23 Expo. But... Um, by all accounts, it sounds like uh, Corliss's building placement is fairly accurate. The size and spacing might not be perfect, but uh, in general, it seems to be a pretty good representation of the current plan. And uh, for whatever it's worth, um, Martin Smith was at least made made aware of three different plans, one of which was the hotel, which he dubbed the worst of the three. And I think he, this was the middle plan for his uh, opinion of it. So, um I think it's going to be an improvement over what was there. Do you think they'll uh, unveil the 50-foot Christ the Redeemer statue that they've ordered at D23? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. You, did you see that, uh, Ben? Or uh, Josh, rather? I, I know what you're referring to, but my understanding <laughs> was that there wasn't a lot of certainty as the fact that Disney was the customer for that particular <laughs> is, anyone, is that not obviously going to the Holy Land experience? <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners that are unfamiliar with what Ben is talking about, uh Within the last week on Twitter, a model shop, uh, a nondescript model shop, not necessarily a Disney model shop, uh, saw the appearance of a 50-foot Christ the Redeemer reproduction, um, uh, fueling additional Brazil pavilion speculation for Epcot. But uh, (laughs) it does not seem like they'd be at the point where they're ordering the giant uh, (laughs) marquee weenie for for the Brazil pavilion now when they haven't exactly cleared land for it. So. Um, yeah, that the timing on that seems suspect at best. <laughs> oh well, oh well. So, do we have anything else on Epcot? Uh, should we move on to the next thing? Moving on. 
All right. Uh, we wanted to touch briefly on Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, one of the shortcomings of this, uh, I think something beyond the attractions that everybody was looking forward to participating in was going into the cantina, not necessarily the cantina from the movies, but a cantina, I guess, Oga's cantina. And when they first announced this project, the implication was that there was going to be a table service restaurant and the cantina was going to be attached to it, uh, perhaps like um, 50s prime time where they've got the tune in lounge. So the cantina was going to be part of it, but it was really just going to be a restaurant that was also the cantina that would also have the DJ. And then they forgot to build a restaurant. So depending on who you're listening to, the cantina's um, capacity is anywhere between 30 and 150 people. Uh, regardless, it seems a little bit insufficient, but if it's 150, that's a lot more manageable. But, uh, the 30 I mean, is a 30 is like Kava sized. Yeah. I mean, Kava probably holds 50. Yeah. I, we should get Gary to go there and see what the occupancy limit plaque says outside. But you know, that's a tiny, tiny little space. I can't imagine that they would put that, uh, that, uh, you know, anything of with a expected draw of that size into galaxy's edge. That would be insane. I mean, I just think of Trader Sam's, which is that's a, true. <laughs> it it doesn't have a uh, it doesn't have a popular intellectual property attached to it, and it's still wildly popular. It's hard to get a seat, and yep. it's probably you know thirty to forty people. Um, see, I, I I look at you know you can compare it to Kava, or you can compare it to Trader Sam's, but those are both places that if you get to go there, it's cool. But it's not necessarily a must do every trip. I consider this more like Ollivander's down the street at Universal, oh, yeah. where people are gonna want to do this and. Look at how bad that was. <clears throat> they screwed that up with, with making that place so small that they had to massively uh, make up for it over at Diagon Alley. How do you make something this small? How do you do this and and, and think it's going to work and not just piss off a ton of people? They're, they're going to have to cor- course correct this at some point. So I have a theory as to how it happens. And it's it's, it's almost a, a psychological phenomenon, I would say, which is that there if, if you're designing spaces in the theme park, I think it's natural and understandable to want to create a quote unquote intimate experience. And it's one of those things that when you make the concept art for it, it looks like the coolest thing in the world. And the idea of an intimate space inside of Walt Disney world is really awesome. But the problem is it doesn't actually work in reality because it just becomes wall to wall people. Um, The closest thing to an intimate space that I found at Disney world modern day is probably the wave, those little lounges that are off the side of the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's just because it's off the beaten path enough to where, you know, it doesn't have the foot traffic to where it's constantly swamped, but it's not in the actual theme park. Um, I, I think you put something like this inside of Galaxy's Edge and it it doesn't look like that artwork where it's just, you know, you and your friends having a nice conversation in this highly themed environment. It just is a cluster F of, of wall-to-wall people. So... There is, there's expansion for this. There's room for a table service restaurant. Also, if you were to look on www.themeparks.com, you'd see that La Cava has a capacity of 53 people. Um, okay. Well done. But, <laughs> I, I think Gary, Gary, you don't have to go now, Gary. You can stay home. Yeah, get, go back upstairs. <laughs> I think this is, this is purely budgetary. And it's silly because if you're going to cut things, this shouldn't be the thing you're going to cut. No, don't do it at all if you're going to do that. I mean, do it correctly or don't do it. Yeah. It's almost like if you wanted a small, intimate place, you can you can do that. You could have a little uh, a first order bar. What you tell, but if you're going to put the name Cantina in it, in a Star Wars area, it can't be small. It, right. No matter what, you can't name something Cantina and have it small in Star Wars. And that, that's just incredibly poor planning from the get-go. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge Star Wars devotee, and and I get the significance of that. So, you know, that's going to be a problem. I'm sure that the land is going to have plenty of photo ops. uh, And I suspect that any signature drink here that becomes popular, that uh, they can't meet demand, they will make available elsewhere in the land. Uh, I I, I know that people are are joking that um, merchandise is going to be available outside of the land. I'm would be shocked if it wasn't, to be honest with you. Uh, but I think that they're going to figure out pretty quickly what people want. And if it's more space inside Ogus Cantina, then they're going to expand it because they're going to have to. Um, and hopefully that is realized in Disneyland. And basically before it opens in Florida, they've already started the expansion uh, of the cantina because there is room to do it. Uh, it just seems short-sighted why they didn't do it at the outset. But hopefully the information we're getting right now is wrong, and it is closer to that 150 number as opposed to 30. But we shall see. We shall see. Anyway, uh, a few episodes ago, we, uh, we discussed our idea of putting an intellectual property into Epcot, trying to find a way to tie it back to the original Epcot themes and still satisfy the current Disney administration uh, motivation of putting everything tied to a movie. So uh, Josh and Ben each came up with ideas that kind of lent themselves to further development. I went a half ass route and didn't really need to develop it any further. But uh, Josh's idea was a Wreck-It Ralph artificial intelligence attraction. Josh, you want to give the uh, elevator pitch on what that was for people that weren't uh, paying attention to episode five? Sure. So Like me. So- So the elevator pitch is that uh, the original incantation of Epcot was a combination of entertainment and education. It was, uh, you know, about where fantasy and the real world meet. And um, I think one of the things that a lot of people tend to misunderstand about the original Epcot is that particular future world is they think it was about technology, but it really is about people. Both uh, World Showcase and Future World are about people. World Showcase about the way they interact with each other on a global scale and Future World with regard to how people create technology and then technology shapes and affects the lives of people. So there's a cycle there. And I think there's a natural tie-in to artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence is a very revolutionary and transformative step in computer science where we go from a world where computers are completely deterministic, where everything that they do has to be specifically programmed algorithmically, al- algorithmically by a developer, and then the computer does exactly that, period, with no deviations. Um, the world of quote-unquote AI, which is really a buzzword that describes a whole family of technologies, is where computers themselves can be taught to where they in assess to to the, where in essence they write their own code. So in other words, you can have a computer ultimately that is executing command uh, executing routines that were not specifically programmatically created by a developer. So that's sort of complicated sounding, but in the world of Wreck-It Ralph, uh, the tie-in is that if you think of the first movie, we had Penelope von Schweetz, who was a glitch, right? Yep. So the idea there was that a, a human being would have written the code that created that world, that created the game, that created her, and created the problem. And there actually was sort of an artificial intelligence component there because the glitch got fixed, right? But the the evolution of that is a world in which we go from we essentially go into that world of code and we see the transformation toward being on a track, which was my original idea as a basically an omnimover 
an attraction that looks like an Omnimover where it's on a track and that's sort of uh, axiomatic of deterministic code. And then at the you know midpoint of the ride, the vehicle departs from the track and starts to do its own thing, representing the the point at which uh, you know we have sentience, if you want to call it that, or where the computer starts to uh, do its own thing. And, and that was sort of the depth that I gave on episode five. I didn't really give any more detail, so we could take it from there if you want. Sure. Uh, there's something that you hit on, though, about Epcot uh, and it being about people. And this perhaps is a homework assignment for a future show, but trying to determine what the future of Epcot is, especially with what they've built. We've, we've asked the question before, and perhaps this is something that isn't something we can answer on the show, but independent of the Wreck-It Ralph attraction, more tied to the reality of what they're building, is there a way to unify Epcot? Is it around people? Is it replacing the, uh, the P in Epcot with, with people and trying to find a, find a new acronym that, that centers around it? Or is it maybe focusing on the word community a little bit more? Because that's, you know, again, an extension of, of people. But um, I'd, I'd be interested to see if Disney can find a way to unify new Epcot again. Because that that's been our biggest fear all along. That, yes, we understand that it's changing, but it's been a disconnect and they haven't necessarily come up with a focus for it yet. And I, you mentioned people as kind of a focal point, and that's why I'm I'm uh, going back to this and pushing the Wreck-It Ralph discussion aside for a moment. I mean, to, to respond to what you just said, I, I think the answer is yes. And, and the specific question I'm referring to is, can Disney find a way to unify Epcot and, and make it uh, compelling in a way that it connects the way, let's say, Fantasyland or Magic mm-hmm. Kingdom does? And, and I think the, the reason is the same, which is that we as, it, it really comes down to understanding the human condition, I think. And, you know, not to get heady or academic or, you know, drive this conversation in a boring direction, but but we as people, as different as we might be and as diverse as we might be, we all share some common traits, you know, and psychologists study this, like Maslow and, and trying to figure out what it is that makes us happy. But, and I'm certainly not an expert on that. I don't know enough to even carry a conversation about it, but, but I can s- summarize it like this. We all want to feel mm-hmm. okay. And, and there's a lot of ways that we get from uh, worrying about all of the, the trappings and tribulations of life to where we can just relax and have a nice time. And one of them is escapism. And, and that is how I view Magic Kingdom. That's the value proposition of Magic Kingdom is taking you out of the real world and putting you in some place that is purely fantastic to where you're not thinking about the mortgage and the, uh, you know, the asshole real. neighbor. You hate that, but that's what it is. Uh, I you, do. you are you are thinking about mortgage though after dinner at Yargas. <laughs> but, but that's the that's the real becoming fantastic. Where the mode of escape there is just completely obviating or, or obfuscating the real world. Epcot took a completely different approach to that, which was it wasn't let's forget about reality. It was it it took the viewpoint of let's take reality and imagine if we actually addressed and solved all of the problems that cause your stress in the real world. So it's a completely different approach, but the thing that it tries to actually achieve is exactly the same as what magic kingdom does. And I think the reason that Epcot has suffered at least from a mindshare standpoint in the last decade is because they stopped doing that. And, and that's really the problem with injecting characters into Epcot is that it dilutes the value proposition that Epcot actually has. And my hope for Future World is that 
um, you know, I guess future world and tomorrow, uh, excuse me, future world and world showcases, at least if they're going to insist on injecting characters in, at least make the narrative that those characters are operating on something that still relates to the real world. Because otherwise, you're depriving Earth of the only theme park I know of in the world that provides that sort of thematic approach to to viewing life. You kind of got where I was hopefully going with this. And I, I didn't fully uh, flesh this out before the show, but I, w- I was thinking um, the future of Epcot would be you change the sea in Epcot to communities uh, from community and celebrate the communities of the world and world showcase as they already do, but also look at things that could bind us together in future communities and Things like artificial intelligence, in theory, could do that by making our lives better. Spaceship Earth already works as a thesis attraction because it's about communication yep. itself. So, yep. I mean, just say the word community five times per ride and you're probably good with a theme like that. It's a pretty general theme. But uh, looking at that aspect of futurism and how we could potentially live differently uh, – is not it doesn't require too many changes to some of the existing attractions. But anyway, that's a topic for another show. Uh, back to uh, to Wreck It Ralph. Um, before we kind of get into our individual pitches here, I had a few questions on how we could approach this and perhaps do it from that analytical blue sky approach here. So, um, Josh, you kind of briefly went into the the basic premise of Wreck It Ralph and how there is a glitch in the game, and that does. Uh, lend itself to an attraction like this, talking about artificial intelligence. But the the story dynamic is a first part of the ride uh, that where the characters are restricted by some set of rules. Uh, so if we're looking at the movie and want to tie things to the movie, perhaps we have to look at the individual game constructs and see which ones might translate to a track ride. Did you have one in mind? Did you think that this is just going to be a general Wreck-It Ralph attraction? Uh, what, what were you thinking there or Ben, did you have a thought on it either? So my thought, honestly, <laughs> I, I mean, is, I don't think it's a mystery at this point. I'm not generally a fan of injecting of character injection sure. or IP injection in general. So this was, I didn't really look at it as a way as, Hey, I need to get record Ralph in here. I simply saw that as a medium with which I could paint the picture that I wanted to create. Okay. Um, because they are, these are characters but i i think there's there's sort of a fundamental problem with my idea in a, in a ip-based attraction is that if the whole premise is that these things break out of the roles that they're originally designed to be then there's going to come a point on an infinite time scale where these coded characters are no longer themselves if that makes any sense that's kind of how i broke it down as well and which i'm i'm trying to turn that weakness into a strength because if that, because in a normal context, you might consider that to be a storytelling error, right? In other right. words, these people are acting out of character. But in, if the whole point of what you're doing is describing something that normally can't change is something that now can change on its own, then what would ordinarily be a problem is actually a strength, if that makes any sense. Um, and, and I'll admit right off the bat, I, I'm good at some things in the world. Storytelling is not one of them. I'm not, a, I'm not an artist. And I'm not a writer. I mean, I write for a living, you know, technical writing and business writing and legal writing, but not fiction. Um, 
so I have very little training in that, but that, you know, I had to start with very elementary principles and people who do write for a living are probably throwing their iPhones across the room as they listen to me right now. <laughs> but I, I took it simply from the standpoint of a story needs to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I, I kind of, when you were pitching the idea, <clears throat> I think in my head, I was kind of uh, visualizing something along the lines that came from like Wreck-It Ralph 2 when, where there's a good 30 minutes of that movie when they first get to the internet where he's being educated on the internet. There are other characters uh, bringing him information on what's what's going on in and around him. So I kind of had a thought in my head of, you know, it, it, it's not him hitting the internet, obviously, but it's like him finding out artificial intelligence and there's other things coming along the lines of teaching Ralph a lot what it is, the concepts of it, and him, uh, you know, becoming more knowledgeable on it as the attraction moves along. Yeah, you're you're not far off of of my of what I'm ultimately going to get to here. So that that's good. I think we're on the same page. One of my other questions here is: How do we tell that artificial intelligence story within the ride? Is it overtly explained or is it implied? And okay, that's that's something where you need like an exposition character to explain it if that's what you want to do. Okay, so should I just delve into my idea? Yeah, go for it. And again, go for it. The reason that I, I mentioned the beginning, middle, and end is because, quite frankly, that's all I've got. <laughs> um, I, I, because it's just not my strength. I would, if I, if if we take the premise of the show to its ultimate conclusion, we imagine we really are in Imagineering. Mm-hmm. I would be absolutely dependent upon the talented and creative people that that company employs in order to connect the dots. But I, but I think that the dots that I have are worth connecting. So. Okay. Uh, without further ado, uh, let me begin. So the, I think the pre-show to an attraction like this would be critically important. Sure. Because if you're going to try and convey a message that is arguably complex, you, you have to get people in the right frame of mind. The good thing is Disney's good at this. And if it's popular, there's going to be plenty of time to kill. Can we get the guy from the uh, Flight of Passage pre-show to do it? <laughs> I, I want I, Scary Cities all the way. <laughs> Um, so so <laughs> the, here is my first introduction to the ride is a young child expressing an interest in computers to his mom or dad, to one of his parents and him struggling with, or she, uh, with being able to write programs, but that's what they want to do. They want to be a programmer, and they're not good at it and they struggle, but they keep getting encouraged and eventually they get better. And that's sort of our first vignette into who the main uh, well, one of the main characters of this ride is going to be. So you're creating a new character for this. It's sort of, you know, name doesn't even matter. Okay. It's just an anonymous person, but it's, it, but it, we'll call him, we'll call him figment. No, we will not. <laughs> we'll call him Ben. Um, <laughs> so this person is going to transition from being someone who lacks the ability to do what they are capable of. And we'll sort of fast forward into a time with them as a young adult they start a technology company and they are going to write a game, which is ultimately going to include the characters from Wreck-It Ralph. So that's how we get our characters in here. Okay. And so there's a transitional moment for that individual who creates the software from someone who can't do it to someone who can. And then we get on the ride as a, as one of the characters from this game and as, and Maybe it's a glitch. Maybe it's some capability that they don't have. But as we transition through the ride to the midpoint, the AI, which is actually being produced by that person that we met in the beginning, is now empowering these characters to evolve and become better than they were, just like he did. So the point here 
is to correlate the way that humans learn and get better and project that onto software, which until now had no capability to improve on its own and, and develop into something which is now in some ways alive. In other words, it's an anthropomorphic sort of model that we're trying to create. And since people understand the way that humans learn and evolve, if you want to teach them about the AI and what its capabilities and potentials are for humanity, it would be useful to, you know, con- compare and contrast that to a small child who, could, you know, is barely struggling to do the simplest of things uh, and who grows up into be someone who can transform the world with their ideas. And then it's kind of Figment see- story arc. It is. I mean, and is there any really new stories? I mean, no, no, I mean not, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's that's pretty similar to like first incarnation of Figment and now the current incarnation of Figment. Although it's well, like your I sure hope my ride is not like the current incarnation no, you know of Figment. I mean, like that, that he is, he at least thinks that he's the expert here. He's evolved right. to that point. So right, but I think it's really about change because if you go back to the to the thesis of what I said, and that's really where all of this sort of grows from is my belief that I think that in order to build an attraction that's going to be reasonably calculated to have an impact on people, you have to start by asking what is going to have an impact on people. Mm -hmm. And I could be completely wrong about what that is, but my, my opinion is people want to feel empowered. Most people feel good when they hear an underdog story. Um, You know, when they hear that, because it makes them believe that if this, you know, like what was that movie? Uh, was it Hoosiers? You know, where the little, whatever, I don't, maybe that's not the right movie. The little football movie where the little kid got put in the end and he, you know, scored. Yes. Yes. The, the football movie Hoosiers. Yeah, Keep going. I know that's basketball. Never. What's the name of that movie? God. <laughs> uh, why do I ever deviate down the road of sports? Anything. I, I should know. Better than we we got it. Go ahead. So I, I think that there's a natural visceral reaction to seeing someone who's unlikely to succeed ending up having great success because it takes the insecurity that's in all of us and it turns it into hope, which is generally a feeling that people like having. Um, so that's what that's this was about. So at the midpoint of the ride, this track vehicle undergoes this transformational moment where it gets the, the critical massive capability that it needs. And then the finishing point, and again, I'm skipping all the dots that go here, is where this kid who developed this software when he was, you know, started programming as a little kid and then developed the AI software is an old man and, you know, struggling with old age and software that has evolved from what he created is helping to diagnose his medical condition and provide better health care to him so that he can live a better life in his senior year. Maybe he's 110 years old or something. So it's, it's all about the full circle kind of thing. And that's basically all I got. So I'm out. Uh, first takeaway <laughs> sounds a little deep for a record Ralph attraction. <laughs> <laughs> I have been accused of overthinking things before. Just objectively what I was thinking about the. Okay. Here's, right, before you go on, here's the second plan. It's an omni mover where you shoot guns at targets. Ooh, I like it. My new um, uh, uh, guilty pleasure uh, screen rant does pitch meetings of, of movies are like three or four uh, minute pitch meetings. And it's the same catchphrase as every movie. And it basically uh, points out every shortcoming of the movie. And it's things like that, where it just throws out a, um, 
a, a stupid thing that's going to be referenced in it. A, a perfect example of it is the Ready Player One uh, pitch meeting where he's at, they're addressing all the flaws with the movie, and then the guy that's doing the pitch says, "Hey, remember Batman? I like Batman. What were we talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like easily distracting things. So, so anyway, back. I, I'm a. I'm starting to get worried that you're getting paid by screen ranks. It's like the fourth straight up uh, yep. podcast that you've mentioned. Them. So anyway, um, the, the way that I kind of saw this is what I'm hoping the future of Epcot is. If we're putting characters in there is that they use the pavilion model again, where you can go a little bit deeper into artificial intelligence in a pre and post show, but the ride itself still needs to stand alone. And mm-hmm. that's where I think that it's why I asked the question, do we overtly, tell an artificial intelligence story within the ride. Uh, does the narrative have to be linear? Cause oftentimes Disney rides, they don't, you're just kind of going through an experience. And I think there are ways, especially with Wreck-It Ralph, there are story beats in the movies themselves that lend itself to discussing artificial intelligence. Um, but I think that the pavilion itself doesn't have to just be Wreck-It Ralph you can look at other components of it and be at other movies. You can talk vision and Ultron for the uh, Marvel cinematic universe, or you can speak in generalities and kind of explain artificial intelligence. But uh, it's been a premise in, you know, countless sci-fi movies and they just have artificial intelligence and robots taking over the world, things going hardly wrong. And other times it's like, it's represented with a computer lifting whatever restrictions were in place and seeing what happens there. And that's kind of what I was thinking for that. Very few of those are uplifting though. No, they, 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 <laughs> that's true. Um, but I looked at the, the actual arcade games in the movie and, uh, the ones that are most prominent in the movie had sugar, Cuba. Rush, slaughter race, fixed Felix jr. And hero's duty. And with slaughter race and hero's duty, just from like trying to represent it in a ride form, uh, slaughter race has no track. You can drive anywhere. You're not really restricted and it's going to be hard to represent like a level of restriction on an artificial intelligence in that attraction. If it's just like going through the slaughter race environment, Heroes duty, same thing. It's pretty complex, probably difficult to distinguish in a ride. Uh, fix it. Felix jr. Is the most primitive of all of them. And possibly one where you could say, all right, you're starting to fix it. Felix jr. Uh, environment and then breaking free of that, uh, as your intelligence, as your artificial intelligence grows. But from just a pure storytelling standpoint, for me, what made the most sense was something with Sugar Rush. And it screams not in Epcot, um, <laughs> just because it's like candy fueled, sugar fueled, bright colors that just don't really fit in Epcot. But it's an. It's, but wouldn't you have said the same thing about Figment? Fair I enough. Mean, yeah, it's fair. To me, the characters, those are just bits. Mm-hmm. To me, it's the story that matters. So, so I, I, I felt pretty but, liberated to do what I wanted with the character. But you, you absolutely can. Um, and this is kind of going to how we uh, took our one and a half billion dollar approach last time around. Is we come up with a general idea, your Wreck-It Ralph artificial intelligence attraction. And I think we're going to come up with three different ideas here. And we're going to come up with three totally different ideas here. But I had I had Sugar Rush as the premise of mine, and I went into it a little bit deeper, but I just kind of wanted to go through that logic of sure. I was looking at the components of the movie itself and going backwards from that, whereas I think you, you were focusing more on the artificial intelligence, which is, I think, really what we want to do. But the reality is there's, there's going to be ties to a movie and anything that's a Disney pitch. But 
Yeah. I know, Ben, you had ideas on this as well, and perhaps a, a pre-show idea that you wanted to go over. Yeah, I, I'll get to the pre-show in a second, but, you know, I don't have like a real scene by scene idea on this, but I, I kind of had a thought of doing something along the lines of like a, I always enjoyed like world of motion where okay. you started way at the beginning and then you work your self up to, to, to the now and then to the future. And so, uh, you know, when you mention stuff like artificial intelligence, yeah, it's real easy for a lot of people to jump to the kind of like the Terminator type stuff, the, 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 the bad, it's real easy. A lot of people talk about that now, uh, Obviously, if you sit back and have a deep dive into it, we know how important it is in everyday life. But going into the characters of like Wreck-It Ralph, where they're not incredibly self-aware in the movies, he's he's learning about himself a lot as the uh, in in all, in the first film and the second film. So I kind of want to break it down to uh, it's almost like you you start off where these characters in the movies are. Are, they're just now learning that they are artificial intelligence. So you know, the, yeah. the, the, the education of what artificial intelligence is at a point, Ralph is like, holy crap, that's what I am. And it, it, it moves along from starting at the basis of a video game. Cause I, I sit and look at my children who sit on, you know, it's not great. And we can complain about it, but it's the truth. They sit on their phones, they play games, they do stuff all day, not really realizing that the games that they're playing, the characters they're interacting with, that's, that is the artificial intelligence that, that incorporates in there. So starting at the very basic level of a game and how that form of artificial intelligence plays in a person's life on a day-to-day basis, building it up to how important it is moving forward and, and where the future of artificial intelligence goes. So uh, I, and it has that kind of aha moment that that Josh mentions, where like the trains break off from each other. Yeah, I think there is that part where where Ralph gets it and and understands what it is, and it's once he gets it, that's when the doors to the future of artificial intelligence are opened, and the education of to the guests as they're going through the attraction. Uh, really, the, the like I said, the doors kind of get blown off, and uh, we see everything that can happen moving forward. But my my idea for a pre-show is, uh, you know, it gets a little bit away from your pavilion idea, uh, I think, but I would love nothing more than to incorporate. Uh, this does get a little bit more back into the IP world of it, but it, I'm fine with it in this instance. But you know, where you're walking up to the Ricket Ralph attraction, uh, maybe it's kind of a nondescript building, but when you walk through those doors, you're in Litwick's arcade. Yep. And it's one of those virtual queue areas like you would find at a Jimmy Fallon where uh, you're not waiting in a normal switchback line. You get to sit in there and play classic arcade games. And uh, it has all the old stuff in there. You know, had that whole section that used to be at Disney Quest that that was probably the most popular area of Disney Quest with the old 70s and 80s stand up coin up arcade games. I know I have kids that we, it's very popular now, obviously with the arcade bars and stuff like this. And there's the retro arcades that are coming back. Uh, It's a bonding moment for parents. A lot of times it's the stuff that I grew up on that my kids are getting exposed to for the first time and kind of falling in love with, with that whole genre and falling in love with uh, what they're actually going to be learning about once they go get on that ride. So I would love to have a virtual queue area that is Litworks arcade, have them all, quarter coin up games make it very old school make it like it was back in the uh, 80s and 90s and uh that's where you kill your time before you get called into litwick's office and that's maybe where you uh you know just like in in wreck ralph 2 where they were on his modem 
and uh, you kind of started their whole adventure. You get called into Litwick's office, go in there, and you, you're uh, starting to go off from that. The the way that it works, I mean, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. The Epcot has had arcades in the past, back when um, Interventions first opened. I remember it having a Sega section. Um, so, I, I mean, it's, I don't think that's that far off. And whatever exterior facade you make is, is fine. I really have zero issue with that. But um, no, I, I think that working it through there and then the, the one thing that I'd want to experience is actually going through uh, like a power cord like they do in the end. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. As part of the queue or part of the ride would be uh, would pretty. Be I, want, cool. I want to get shot through an Ethernet cable. Um, but some of those things I just are want, pretty cool to kind of just visualize. So, if we are going with the idea that the uh, the cars are going on what seems like an omni mover, and then at some point break apart, like in Josh's original ideas, I'm guessing this is a uh, trackless ride system. So I, I wrote that down and. One of the things I said was you need a reason to use the trackless vehicles. Otherwise, it's a simulator. And, I mean, whatever ultimate story you come up with, it, you determine the ride vehicle after the fact. And I think at the outset we were thinking trackless. But ultimately, if it's just you're you're still going on a, a relatively predetermined path, then you don't necessarily need the trackless vehicles. But anyway. Well, if it is trackless, we'll open a year and a half late. So. <laughs> yes, you got to factor that in there. Add in a year and a half of build time. I, I love the idea of starting out in the arcade. And you know what? You can perhaps incorporate that into any pre and post show as well. But uh, I think if the motivation here is artificial intelligence, uh, you got to figure out how much weight that carries, how much weight does the intellectual property carry. Um, and this is part of the problem that we've seen with many of the forcing of, uh, of movies where they don't belong is that you, you dilute the movie, you dilute the story yep. you're trying to tell and you're trying to find that healthy balance between the two of them. So I think, uh, Josh, you are definitely leaning on the artificial intelligence side of it. My scene, For sure. my scene by scene was more on the movie with the artificial intelligence as an afterthought. And I think Ben, you're probably in that same mode as I am. Um, See, my concern is that what made the art, what made the intellectual property valuable in the first place, is that the story that those characters told was compelling. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you that if you if you do anything with them that isn't good, <laughs> let, let me start over. I, I sort of lost my train of thought there. I I, I think we had this is my it, this boils down to my whole fundamental problem with characters in the park in the first place is this idea that because people responded well to them in a film, that they will automatically respond to them well in a theme park attraction. And that's only true if the implementation of them in the that's attraction so is meaningful the way it was in the movie. And I think more times than not, what we see is that that's not the case. It's essentially just trading on their, popularity yeah. uh, without any concern for what their actual story or universe is. It's familiarity um, over quality. That's been the, uh, yeah. and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but we've seen most recently uh, the car show over at Hollywood studios. Um, and that's preying on familiarity. And yes, there's a very cool animatronic in it, but it's preying on familiarity more than quality. Which is why, Several times now I've said that I don't like the term intellectual property because the way it's used in the theme park podcast sphere, 
because what it suggests is that intellectual property can be only created in a movie. And that's, that's not the, the case. That's the implication. I mean, yes, I get it. But you, they're, they're using existing ideas as opposed to creating new ideas. Right. And that's, to me, if you're an imagineer, if literally imagination first part of your job title, uh, and I don't think it's their fault, to be clear, but but the certainly the managers that, that, that guide them are, have some responsibility for that. Um, why is it that people who create movies are encouraged and expected to create new ideas and people who create theme park attractions are expected to shoehorn them into what they make? Um, it doesn't have to be that way. And we know that because for the first 30 years of, of theme park existing, it, that wasn't the case. So, you know, Wreck-It Ralph to me seemed like a, a situation in which there was enough similarity between the films and the characters in the film and the idea I wanted to tell to where it made sense. But I truly think that if, if you pitch this to a room full of talented storytellers and they were having problems making it fit, that the correct solution is you make new great characters right. and then maybe yes. make a movie out of them after the fact. I just, I hate that creative talented people are having hand are being handcuffed and not being allowed to express well, their ultimate creation. And see, on this one, I have no problem with it being very character heavy because at, the, at, at his core, Ralph is artificial intelligence and everything that he interacts with is inter, inter, artificial intelligence. So it's not like uh, it's not like we're trying to do a Winnie the Pooh attraction where Christopher Robin decides he wants to be a, a, a programmer and he Googles uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, that's where it takes off. So it's a, you know, right. a Winnie the Pooh version of AI. Yeah, no, Ralph, I agree. Ralph at his core is AI. And so that's why I like going back. It, it seems like in both movies, Ralph has that aha moment and that's when the adrenaline kicks in. And so I would get excited in my head, in my wonderful attraction that I'm creating myself uh, for that moment when Ralph finally understands what he's learning about and what he is. Uh, and then the attraction really takes off from there. So uh, I, I see no problem in this instance for what you're wanting to build an attraction around and the characters that to, to be used on there, that this can be a very character heavy uh, attraction because it completely makes sense. Right. It, it almost is a wizard of Oz esque. Yeah. You know, where there's, there's just this, uh, this capability there. And then there's a, that, that happens prior to the recognition of it actually existing. And that, that is, again, if you go back to the, to the human condition and what, what moves people, why does that movie, you know, the classic that it is, it's, it just, it all ties into this same thing. Everybody wants to be important. I mean, if you read yeah. Dale Carnegie books, you know, you'll, you, there's, that's the one solid takeaway is if you want to impress people, if you want to manipulate people or make them like you, uh, make them feel important. It's the one characteristic that we, we all share. You can look at almost every action that anyone takes at any given time. And it is motivated in some degree by the need to feel like they matter. So if you can tap into that, you're going to have a winner. The best movie-based attractions are the ones that use the movie intellectual property as a springboard for a new story. And I understand the restrictions that we're putting in this, that it's got to thematically fit into Epcot. Um, you can use the characters in a movie, you can use the settings in a movie, and play on the familiarity of those characters and settings. Um, but I think the ultimate motivation is would we be able to tell a better artificial intelligence story with new characters as opposed to Ralph and Vanellope and the other characters of the movie? I think the answer to that's probably yes, but it doesn't mean that we can't also do it with this because it's 
for lack of a better word, easier. Um, there are certain intellectual properties that certainly fit into Epcot and can extend the stories of the characters and of the environments and make it work. And I don't think this is anywhere near the stretch that some of the other ones that have been considered or even being built or are built in the attraction uh, in the park right now. Um, I want to run through my scene by scene and uh, see what you guys think of it. Cause I took a different approach than Josh. Um, and I, I went down to uh, uh, some talking about like how we'd, what type of vehicles we'd have, that sort of thing. Um, but before I get into that, uh, we kind of assumed, or we've talked about the glitch component of the first Wreck-It Ralph movie. Uh, there's, if Josh, did you see the second one? Ben, I'm pretty sure you did, right? Yeah, I saw it. Okay. I did not. Okay. So in the second one, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, there are two groups of characters, the net users and the netizens. Uh, the metaphor that the movie creators used was that the netizens could go backstage in the Internet where the net users couldn't. And the net users had certain paths that they had to follow, their avatars, essentially. Um, whereas the netizens are like the equivalent of a, you know, Disney World or Disneyland cast member. Um, it's an alternative approach, but I don't think it's one that would be as recognizable to the masses simply because you're not using the primary characters of the movie. People going on a Reddit Ralph attraction would expect to see Ralph and would expect to see Vanellope at the bare minimum. So... Uh, just something else that I thought of while watching um, Ralph Breaks the Internet that could be a story for this, but I'd, I'd prefer to to go with the actual characters from uh, uh, that are the main characters of it. So my idea was going back to Sugar Rush uh, that we play on the fact that there is a track in Sugar Rush. Uh, I think people that viewed the movie like the idea of, I just want to go on the sugar rush track. That sounds like a fun ride to me. And if we're, right. if we're telling the artificial intelligence story, we can do so with the sugar rush track and a, a racetrack as a translation to an attraction, not that big a stretch. So I looked at like, what did I want to see in a sugar rush attraction? I, the other thing I wanted to see was what it feels like from the glitches perspective to, to glitch. Like what, how that, how that effect can be achieved and tell that within the, within the story. And that's where I'm going to use the artificial intelligence. It's not going to be a true evolution of artificial intelligence, but it's from a simplified, how can I tell this in a four or five minute attraction standpoint? Uh, you have rules before a glitch and rules after a glitch, that type of thing. Um, so I looked at it as uh, we would have, we'd be loading eight vehicles at once. Uh, two rows of two, 32 guests uh, being dispatched at the same time, and I would use trackless vehicles. So okay. uh, the, uh, we had four vehicles in dual load areas. Uh, they would go into a tunnel, separate tunnels that lead to the starting line of the race. The background moves alongside a screen, kind of like a multi-plane camera where you've got a you've got a projected background as well as physical props kind of moving along it in the foreground. And a vehicle with Vanellope in the front and Ralph in the back pulls alongside um, in animatronic form. And Ralph is kind of our exposition character here. He asks if it's safe. We don't know these people. They could get hurt on this track. They don't know what they're doing. And Vanellope assures us that the cars are programmed to stay on the track. And that's kind I of like it. the like very rudimentary, you are bound by certain rules. 
So the vehicles line up at the starting line, physically navigate a section of the track. And again, you got the background moving as screens and the foreground moving as physical props. Um, and then other characters come up alongside of you and you're actually, you're just having a race. Basically they're talking trash. And then ultimately a strobe effect immediately changes the scenery from the brightness, bright colors of sugar rush to darkness. And you have a grid of zeros and ones. The visual that I had was that tunnel in spaceship earth. Um, yep. after the Steve yeah, Wozniak, exactly, uh, exactly, garage. Exactly. yeah. And you've got Ralph saying what happened and Vanellope says, I think they glitched. And then you go back to the brightness and we're in a different section of track and it's clear that something has changed. We've joined up with the other load area and now there are eight vehicles driving through different areas of Sugar Rush. They're no longer racing. They're just kind of off the track, moving around. And I think the emphasis here is one of the reasons why Pooh's Honey Hunt works so well is the Heffalump and Woozle scene where you have no idea where you're going. You're moving around a large scene with set pieces that are interacting with you. And every time you go on it, you're going to be interacting with different set pieces. Uh, you can add in vehicles with other characters beyond Ralph and Vanellope. Um, and everyone is concerned that there is a glitch that is controlling the cars. You're not controlling it. Uh, Ralph and Vanellope aren't controlling it, but the computer is controlling the cars. And you're going to have several near misses or near hits, is I guess what the actual term would be. Uh, <laughs> and we see Ralph uh, shout out, I think I see King Candy and Vanellope and Ralph drive off into the next scene and we follow them. And the, then we get to go into the Diet Cola Mountain where King Candy is spotted messing with the vehicle code. You can see him doing something that looks mildly technical. And Ralph uh, knocks Cementos down to the mountain, causing it to erupt. And King Candy glitches into turbo before disappearing. <laughs> we glitch back onto the track with Vanellope and Ralph alongside of us. And maybe we haven't worked out all the glitches and we unload. So it's kind of taking all right elements from the from the uh, the movie. It's not heavily emphasizing the artificial intelligence, but still kind of representing it and using a pre and post show to say what the concept of you know restrictions on computer code might be. Um, but I think it's more, this is a record Ralph attraction that I'd like to ride more than uh, a ride that's appropriate for Epcot. Well, you know, to, I'm going to say that I think that's a pretty awesome idea. And I, Walt Disney had a quote that was basically, it's better to entertain someone and hope they learn something than try and teach them something and hope they're entertained. I wish I would have thought of that quote before I came up with the idea. <laughs> but I think but it is, still goes, uh, I don't think that belongs in Epcot. And it's that's where I think. Well, what is Epcot? That, maybe that's the next ep ep episode because we keep talking about what belongs in Epcot. We've got to define what that is because going by the 1982 definition is never going to be compatible with anything that we're going to be talking about moving forward. Hey, hey, Tim, when does the 110 year old man write in the code to cure his disease that he's about to die from from Josh's attraction show up on your right? <laughs> you know, he glitches. I don't understand what you just said, so I'm going to interpret it as disrespect. <laughs> 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 probably best, probably best. But I mean, it, it really, it kind of goes down to, um, we started the show because we wanted to see what these blue sky discussions would be like. And we're, we're narrowing down topics. We started with a topic of let's come up with an intellectual property based attraction that fits for, that fits in Epcot. And we each came up with three wildly different ideas. And then we focused on Josh's one with Wreck-It Ralph. And then each came up with different ideas for that. And say we were to hone in on something even further than that, like, all right, we have this artificial intelligence attraction. 
and we want to have uh, Josh's hundred year old man, um, you know, evolve at the end of it. Well, how do we, how do we do that scene out? And we could probably come up with three different, totally different ways for that. And our hope here is yes, we're coming up with ideas and that in itself is, is nice to, you know, have that creative thought process, but, uh, hopefully we're reproducing in some way, shape or form, even if it's in the simplest form, uh, what some of these conversations are in 1401 flower street. And that's, I think pretty darn cool, regardless of whether this goes anywhere, it won't, but, um, yeah, Steve jobs is pretty well known for saying that the reason that Apple innovated the way that it did so successfully is not because of the things it said yes to, but all the things it said no to. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, if I were charged tomorrow with creating a company that came up with ex- w- anything new, whether it's a technology or a story, the first step to that has to be cultivating an environment where people are not afraid uh, to just let their imagination go wild without fear of ridicule. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, as, as I heard your guys' comments on my idea, um, part of me was originally, like my initial instinct was like, do I be offended? Do I be like, do I regret saying that? And I'm like, and as I thought about it more, I'm like, no, like this is the process by which you take a rough idea. That's not very good. And you whittle it down into something that, that, that could potentially be great. So, um, I think, I think our premise for the show is actually kind of working. If I could be so bold to say that. (laughs) And I think like looking at how we evolved here in the sense that I think, the end result here is what the conclusion that we've been drawing is that we shouldn't always be forcing movies where they don't belong. Uh, that I, yeah. I think Josh, your attraction would work a lot better in Epcot. If you stripped out the Wreck-It Ralph component of it and you use it as a, I want to focus on the artificial intelligent component. And for me, right. I could not necessarily even emphasize the artificial intelligence component of it. And this is a fun ride for another park. Um, right. And that's, perhaps a different approach that we take. Um, One of the things we've said at the outset of the show was we want uh, Disney to look at areas and look at something that fits in that area. And it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a movie or tied to um, an original concept that is independent of it. It's just looking at, all right, we need a new attraction for world showcase. And what is that going to be? And perhaps it's not even, as general as world showcase that we need something in the corner where Germany and Italy are. So we got to come up with something for either the Germany or the Italy pavilion. And that's about as general as we can get. Uh, And I'm sure that we would come up with three different ideas and our listeners would come up with a hundred different ideas. And that's kind of the approach that I think they should be taking rather than saying, all right, I got to put a Snow White ride in Epcot where I where I put it. You know, that's that's where it's a little bit more focused. Norway, <laughs> yes, exactly. Everything goes into Norway, um, or it's it's more accurately like I got to put a Frozen ride somewhere. Where can I do it quickest? And that's right. That's horrible because it does Frozen their biggest self created franchise uh, in Disney animation since The Lion King, and they force it where it doesn't belong and they do a disservice to frozen and they do a disservice to where they put it. So, and quite frankly, the argument I would make, that's the one that I don't think anyone is making, or at least they're not being successful at it is that it's a disservice to the shareholders in the long run. Oh yeah. Um, because the reason that the Walt Disney parks have the, uh, you know, mind share that they do and have the, the market share that they do is because back in the day, 
the, the ideology was that if you create something great, I hate Kevin Costner. I'm not going to quote him here anyway, but if you build it, they will come, you know, this idea that if you build something great, that the business aspect of it will take care of itself. And that has been flipped on its head to where now it is, like you said, it's value imagineering. It's how quickly can we do it? How cheaply can we do it? Um, and the short term feedback that you get from that isn't necessarily reflective of what that, of what the quality of that decision was. So, you know, what's it going to look like if, if Universal keeps doing what they're doing, uh, and maybe they can't because they don't have the blessing of size, I don't know. Um, but if they do, and Disney keeps taking the shoehorn, you know, Band-Aid approach, I, I don't know what the relative position of those two parts looks like in a decade or two. Universal hasn't that, been exempt of the, from that shoehorning. I mean, I agree. I mean, <laughs> their latest works have not been phenomenal. I mean, they, uh, <laughs> that drop, Superior's ride is, is hot garbage. But they'll drop um, things in, in kind of a dis- disconnected, disjointed area where the ride itself may be well-themed, but the area around it is, uh, there's not much of a transition. Uh, that was never really their core value yeah, proposition either. That's so fine. That's fine. That's they, they have some freedom from that i guess where you have to wonder if is disney cannibalizing their own product um when they when they do it and i don't know you know another possible explanation is that consumers just don't care and that we are such a minority that the things that we view as being you know sacrilege are never going to harm them and I, i hope that's not the case because if it is ben's kids kids uh will never get to experience the things that we did but um Disney you know, often it's a possibility. didn't, they acknowledged that they could come up with things that we didn't know we wanted. So you can say that people didn't care about thematic integrity, but whether they consciously, uh, and they may not consciously be able to say it, but subconsciously they recognize that, all right, if this thing flows correctly, if something as minute as the audio right. cues or the terrain that I'm walking along makes sense and it blends together, there's nothing taking me out of the land, there's nothing taking me out of the environment, then you're going to just be that much more satisfied. But Right. You know, there's a lot of companies that work on focus groups and consumer feedback. And then there are companies that do what you just said, that they believe they know what customers want, even when the customers don't. But the thing is, the success you're going to have being a paternalistic company depends very largely on how smart daddy is. Because if daddy's wrong and he's dictating what the customers are going to get, then it's going to blow up in their face. If, if daddy's right and they ignore customer feedback and do what they you know, know people subconsciously want, then it's going to be tremendously successful. I, I think we just don't know yet what, what this current generation of uh, Disney changes are going to yield. You know, this is probably really incredible, uh, wishful thinking, but we know with Disney Plus, they've announced uh, the, there's an Imagineering show that they're planning to put on there. They announced I w- that four I would- years ago, by the way. They just haven't put it out there. It was a, well, four years ago that they announced well, and have they not? I thought I, I guess maybe had seen something about them having a show. That, no, that you're right. It's look. a show now, but it was announced as a movie okay. four years ago uh, with, uh, that Leslie Iwerks was working on. It might have even, might well, have even been six years ago now that I think about it. I, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for them. I would love to see a reality show that would be on the Disney Plus service where it was a true look into the Imagineering process where we saw the good along with the bad. We saw the arguments. We saw the fights that different Imagineers would have for the different great. concepts. And, and, you know, I love the stuff that Disney puts out as the new attractions are being built. They'll put it on the Disney Parks walk, but it's all so happy. It's all, everything's going great. This is wonderful. I want to know about the fights that one Imagineer goes against another one and and 
they're fighting for their concept. They're fighting for what they believe in. Yep. Uh, th- th- that's the best reality TV, even to the point that most reality TV is fake because they, they artificially put that drama in there. I would pay whatever price they charged to watch a show to see that kind of behind the scenes stuff. Totally it's, not, it's, it's not negative. These fights aren't negative. It's st- it, the, 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 that's stuff that it just shows that they care. And, and, right. and uh, that's what us as the consumers on, on this end want to see that even if we don't believe a certain attraction should be going into a certain place, the, I want to see the conversations that go on behind the scenes to at least know that maybe they completely agree with it and they're just doing their marching orders. Or is there a group inside there going, how do we make the best out of this situation that we're maybe being put in? And uh, that would just be fascinating to me. Of course, I don't think they would ever do that, but maybe, maybe there's a chance. You know, I saw a documentary about 15 years ago. Uh, about Boeing when they were developing, I guess maybe it was 20 years ago, developing the 777. Mm-hmm. And the the they spent about 10 minutes on the segment where two independent groups of engineers had routed, one routed a hydraulic line and the other routed a bundle to where if they had built it, these two things would have been in the same place at the same time. It wouldn't have worked. And, you know, it was a problem. It was a failure, but they caught it and they they discussed how they worked around that and how they changed it. Uh, and it was exactly what Ben just said. It was not sanitized. It, it acknowledged the fact that, look, we we were proceeding down a path that wouldn't have worked. And this is how we caught it. And this is how we addressed it. Uh, it was just very fascinating. And I, I would love to see the same thing. Because you know that when you have that many people working on a project, it's not going to be gumdrops and lollipops all the way. They're going to have massive screw-ups. And, and that's okay. It's not... It's not the commission of an error that, that that defines them. It's how they respond to it. I want the conversation I want to hear in that Imagineering documentary is how Uncle Remus got replaced by a frog. <laughs> I mean, because you know that conversation had to take place. Because you know that they are just eager to talk about Uncle Remus. You want to hear about their mistakes and so. Ben, we kind of cut you off after your uh, pre-show explanation did you have uh anything further on like a ride itself or a post show that you wanted to no no i, I got into it a little bit it, it was again along the lines of like the historic uh, uh you know going back to like a world emotion type concept with the with the historical okay, aspect fair. of it and and the the you know getting up to where we are now and in the future but it, it's all very much based on ralph and the other characters in the games learning what they actually are and coming to terms with that and then also realizing maybe how cool that is and what what now that with based on that information that they have what they could do you know moving forward i think that i mean it, as we said there are different ways that we all approach this and i don't know that any one of them is uh is correct uh, I mean, other than mine, but beyond that, like <laughs> it, it, it just kind of lends to the process itself. And if we were actually developing rides, if we were actually Imagineers in all likelihood, if it was just the three of us on the team, we'd probably be taking something from all three of ours. Or we'd say that uh, Josh's ride makes the most sense for Epcot. And we take uh, uh, Ben's ideas of a pre-show and put it into Hollywood Studios for the Wreck-It Ralph that I had. And uh, then we have the evolution of AI from Ben going onto Josh's attraction. And it's just kind of a a hodgepodge of all of them. It becomes two different attractions, three different attractions. That's why you have a team. I mean, I I don't think it's a situation where they're taking one members and saying, all right, everybody else leave. We're building Bob's. 
Right, right. It's very, I'm sure it's very rare that they walk in, somebody's got a scene by scene with, you know, a, a full uh, storyboard of everything. It's like, oh, that's it. That's what we're building. We're done. Build it. <laughs> Just get it done. Hey, if they can, a check. Yeah, yeah. If they can put Frozen in every park, we can put Wreck-It Ralph in every park. It's fine. Oh, God. And on that note, Frozen right across the board. Perhaps that's <laughs> enough for us to wrap the show. Uh, I don't know whether we uh, take a homework assignment from this or we talk offline about what we can do for uh, the next topic. But uh, if, you, uh, if you're liking the show, if you have topic ideas, by all means, email us. Marty called at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. Twitter is, Mar- is at Marty called uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Marty called uh, Josh. Where can we find you online? Uh, Utilidor.com. When I registered the domain, I spelled it wrong. It's U T D and then two O's and an R and an S. So Utilidors, but doors is like the door that you walk through. Yeah. That was easier than spelling it. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid I, I nailed it. <laughs> Just whatever. Stay away from my website. I don't watch it anyway. <laughs> uh, ben, where can we find you online when you're not making memes for uh, for, for Fox? <laughs> uh, I work for Disney now, sir. Uh, no, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Real Skipper Ben, and you can find my Skipper Ben's top ten columns in every issue of Attractions Magazine. Uh, I can be found at WDW Theme Parks on Twitter, and I encourage everybody to use our Amazon affiliate links over on MartyCall.com and WDWTheparks.com. It's the, uh, the same link because everything goes to me. I'm, I'm the, the one that's financing this thing. And uh, you guys, I just want to clarify: it's U T I L I D O O R S dot C O M. Thank you. You have a U T I. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Cranberry. Three, apologies, your Brios. I'm going to the Ocean Spray Pavilion after I leave here. <laughs> Leave off the last note for savings. <laughs> See you next month. Good night. Later. everyone and thank you for the download it's friday april 19th and this is a let's try this again <laughs> i had to mute and i sneezed right as you started the intro too. <laughs> we are on fire i, I have concerns about my allergies for this i'm gonna do my best to be mute out can you hear it before you start again can you you just you just jumped out <laughs> I, <heard that>. <laughs> <laughs> I hit it twice by accident <laughs> So when you, you, we, <laughs> we, when you hit mute, we couldn't hear anything you were maybe saying, but you came right back on for the sneeze. <laughs> I know. I, I, what I was asking is, can, uh, can you <laughs> hang on. <laughs>